Hello and welcome to The Hot Dish, comfort food for rural America. I'm Heidi Heitkamp, former United States Senator from North Dakota. And I'm Joel Heitkamp, former North Dakota State Senator. And my much older brother. And the one Heitkamp that never lost an election. (laughs) Rub it in. Rub it in, Joel. Before we jump in with our next guest, I want to tell our listeners that it is not too late to join the Rural Progress Policy Summit. I want you to go to onecountryproject.com and register. It's free. We're going to be talking about health care, child care, housing, and of course, the upcoming Farm Bill reauthorization. We're going to have great speakers lined up, and you can join us for one or all of the sessions, whatever your time permits. And so it's worth your time. I'm really excited about our next conversation. Congresswoman Marie Glusenkamp Perez. She's a straight shooter from Washington State. And guess what? She's half your age. She's 34. Oh, maybe not half your age. (laughs) Maybe half my age. (laughs) She started serving in the House of Representatives this year, and she's in a tough reelect. Marie, welcome to The Hot Dish. Thank you so much for having me. And Joel, glad to meet you too. I always like people more when I know that um, I know they like their siblings. So, you know. <laughs> well, Congresswoman, I have to tell you, you were the wow. I mean, I'm you not... really were. You were on election night. You were the holy cow. What happened here? Yeah. And I loved it. There were a lot of people high-fiving because of you. Well, it's it's been fun. You know, I mean, I still introduce myself as Mrs. 2%, right? They, <laughs> they gave me a 2% chance. And um you know what, Marie? Guess what? I had a 5% chance, so I double your opportunity, <laughs> but I ran and won. And Heidi, you got to mention the fact that uh, a week before the race was done, the, the state's largest newspaper put out a, a headline saying Heidi Heitkamp's down by 10 points. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. Exactly. That, that, that means never underestimate a woman from rural America, especially a woman like you who owns an auto body shop, of all things. Yeah. My husband and I own an auto repair and a machine shop. And so my whole professional career until now is working in the trades. I I don't know. I think the polls, like, you know, they have a little bit of trouble capturing sort of rural independent voters, you know, and I think that was manifest in my results. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, you know, what people know about you is that you you fought this race that you're fiercely independent. You're going to speak your mind. You didn't come there to just nod your head and say, yeah, I'll do whatever you you want me to do. But let t- talk a little bit about um, growing up and kind of what that experience of how you grew up affected how you ran your race. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that is a really critical thing is like I started working with my husband. I actually I met my husband. I was I was in college. He does not have a four year degree. Um, I was a bike mechanic when I met him, and the and the first thing he gave me, the first gift he gave me when we, when we were dating was the carburetor out of a weed eater. And, like, the secret <laughs> fact about bike mechanics is they want to be car mechanics. That's like graduating to the varsity league. And so I just thought he was very cute and very smart. And we went into business together when I graduated. And um, I love running an auto repair shop. Working in the trades, like, you are so embedded in your community. So we're an independent shop, which is like a dying breed, right? We're not affiliated with a dealership. And so it's a real independent streak. You have to be a fighter to do it. And you're married. Like, I know, you know, who's getting a divorce, who's having a baby, who's like, you know, 
uh, what teenagers like doing burnouts, you know, I know you really know what's going on. And recently with all these like catalytic converter thefts and these, you know, people like literally in tears because they can't afford the $1,200 bill. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's wiping out their savings accounts. And I am so tired of the Republican Party giving lip service to working people and totally missing the boat on what matters. Like nobody stays awake at night. Nobody, no, I might get some blowback, but like people don't stay awake at night worrying about books being banned in the library. They worry about, you know, is their kid gonna get a spot in rehab? Can they afford that bill? You know, those kinds of issues. And, yeah. and that's why I'm a Democrat and why I, I believe that we need to be electing more people from, you know, sort of working class rural backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think when you when you go back and, and you say, what's different? What's different about kind of how you and I were raised, about how we think about issues? And you and I were both in uh, raised in places where people had to get along because there weren't a lot of us. And you couldn't right. walk away from a conversation because right. yes. you're going to go to church or stand yes. next to somebody yes. in the grocery store tomorrow. Yes. And so I, I think it's those skills, uh, you know, and I'm sure you're well known because of your business, but uh, you you work pretty hard during this campaign to get this seat in Congress going door to door. A lot of Congress people, you know, they put a, an R or D behind their name and say that that should do it. Um, when you come from a place like you and I come from, you're out there doing the hard work. And that means you're better able and I think better prepared to represent your constituents. So talk a little bit about your experience going door to door as a Democrat in rural America. Uh, yeah, I mean, people are mad. They're sad. You know, they're resigned about the state of politics and and they're also relieved that people show up and listen to them. I mean, that's what people really need is stop assuming you know what's going on and you have to actually show up and be in conversation and be in relationships. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, you can't, you're not stopping to look at like what somebody's bumper sticker says before you decide if you're going to like pull over and help them, right? It's like you rely on each other in a way that's that's very different and I think is sort of the fabric of functioning democracies. And like, I really am, am very honored to have been let into so many people's lives and, and the chance to talk about these issues. And like one of the things that's come up recently, I know, I know you're, you're an ag, you know, an ag, but like, I, you know, so I'm on the ag committee and farm bill year. And so I'm holding these farm bill listening sessions and these farmers and producers are coming up and, and they are talking about like the incredible levels of consolidation that have happened in marketing and processing and transportation and distribution. And, and, what they're talking about at its heart is these antitrust issues. Uh -huh. And so many Republicans are obsessed with these wedge issues, with these, you know, culture wars. They are not serving our, our rural constituents. Well, you've talked a lot about right to repair, a lot about, you know, th those things that you used to do on the farm um, that you did all on your own, you know, sometimes with some barbed wire and bailing twine, yeah. but yet you had the ability to do it. And I know you've been a champion of the right to repair. Yeah, that was one of the big motivators for me running for Congress. And so right to repair, you're right, is a huge ag issue. And it's sort of the genesis. I'm sure most of your listeners know this, but the genesis is sort of John Deere tractor putting a chip on their, on their tractors. And if you're cutting hay, you only have a few days really to cut hay when it's got nutrition value for stock. It's when the seed head's fully formed, but it hasn't fallen off the stock yet. So you're on this really narrow timeline. 
And all these tractors, you're making model, all blitz out, and there aren't enough dealerships to service them. And these farmers have all signed these terms of service contracts that say they can only go to the dealerships to have them serviced. And like the range I can imagine feeling when you've got like a $250,000 piece of equipment, you're paying an interest rate on sitting in your yard and you can't get out to your fields to like put it to use. So, you know, what happened is like, you know, about half the farmers came out with pitchforks for John Deere and literally, and you know, a lot of them also went to Eastern Europe to get their tractors hacked. That is the reality. And there are real national security concerns when we've got half these tractors, you know, with, with hacked software. So, you know, it's, it's not just about agricultural producers and farmers. It's also about, you know, the people buying beef. Uh, it's about, you know, it's frankly, it's about independent auto repair shops like mine. Like, you know, you say you support the trades. Will there be things for the trades to fix going forward? Or are we all going to be buying disposable equipment, you know? And that's what's gotten the hackles raised for the environmental movement, too, because they realize, like, this sort of cheap consumerism is terrible for our natural resources and for our environment. So, Congresswoman, I'm, I'm curious. You're out there talking to the folks right at ground level in those town hall type meetings. Um, and, and the people I live around are just as mad. And so it doesn't matter if you're if you're where you're at or where I'm at. But a lot of these people are committed to, to green or they're committed to red, uh, case IH. And so, you know, John Deere pulled this crap. And uh, are you hearing from any of them that people are going to pull the pin on green? Because, that, I mean, here's the truth. They're already invested in it so bad, it's, it's awful hard for yeah. them to switch around. Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. Like, you know, you get married into and I, you know, I think part of their, the green, you know, sort of calculation is that they've got us over a barrel. And yeah, it's a real problem. And it's crazy. You know what I'm actually seeing, too, is there's a booming trade and demand for the vintage tractors now that don't have that stuff on them. They don't have all the same, you know, bells and whistles on emissions and things like that. So you can keep it running. People want a backup now. Well, and, and the one thing that people don't realize is that a lot of what's sold, because it is so expensive, is expected to make you money when you sell. Mm, right. And, of course, they de- they devalued the opportunity to to sell it as used equipment to the guy that maybe can't afford the new combine. Yep. And, and so that's what's so frustrating as well for these farmers. It's like owning Milwaukee tools. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you own... If you own Milwaukee, you're not going to go buy in DeWalt. And it's, yeah. it just, it runs the same way, Congresswoman. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. And and it's, I think, for a lot of us in, you know, automotive world, like, it's crazy. Like, these manufacturers are trading on a reputation they built 30 years ago. And now what we see coming out is, like, it's going to kill the middle class. Like, I've never bought a new car in my life. Like, I rely on you know, the folks that religiously check their oil so I can buy it from them secondhand off Craigslist. And now, you know, a lot of these cars are just, I would not, I would not buy new. And I tell people, and I tell my customers not to because the quality of manufacturing has, and I think that this is part and parcel of the sort of collapse of career and technical education in high schools. Like we don't have informed consumers in the same way. So consumers don't know what they're looking at, you know, and it's created, I think, what's like antithetical to American culture. Like, 
Americans are in our best. I think we are people that are stewards of the things we rely. We are not just consumers. And um, we're losing that very quickly. It's, it is a problem. You know, we talk about what an anomaly um, and unicorn you are um, being a Democrat representing a, a rural district, your background, small business owner. You come with all those experiences. But the other experience you come with are the struggles of the millennials, the end of the millennials, beginning of Gen, uh, Gen Z, if that's what it is. And and I think, you know, people talk about diversity and representation. A lot of times, you know, you look at Congress and you say they are really old and <laughs> it is really exciting to have a young voice who's going to represent kind of that that younger generation. So what unique issues do you think you bring um, and experiences do you think you bring to Congress, given your age? Well, I mean, I think for one is sort of an understanding, like looking around at the levels of depression and anxiety and all this stuff, you know, so my so my husband and I are part of the generation, right, where like every shop class, automotive class got turned into a computer programming class. And these were like going to be the jobs of the future. And this idea that like what you're good at isn't good enough right? Like you've got to be going to college if you're, if you're intelligent. And, and like that early exposure to a devaluing of your natural abilities, like no wonder we're all mad about it, right? Like, and that coupled with the lack of like, I can work as hard as I want. I'm not going to make as much money as my parents. I'm not going to have the same net wealth because um, the, you know, for one thing, like the levels of appreciation in the real estate market, our lack of, you know, like the cost to go to school now, the debt that people carry. We kind of got financially hoodwinked, right, as a generation. And so, you know, I went to college, got the debt, and then went to, <laughs> then started a small Um But I think that representing that reality, those interests, especially now as a, as a young parent, I've got a 21-month-old son. Um, the cost, oh my God, I almost cried looking at, I, my mom showed me the bill for when her brother was born. It was like $11.30. Uh, it was like, thir- like 13000 for just a regular, you know, giving birth, you know? No, wow. Um, nothing complicated at all. Got out of there as fast as I could. I think the most important reason why I tell people why we need to elect young people is old people don't know what those struggles are. They don't know that you basically are using one paycheck to pay daycare. Yeah. They don't know that, you know, that house that they were able to buy that was affordable now is three times over, you know, overpriced. Yeah. And, and the housing is more expensive and cars are more expensive and, you know, everything just, you know, education has escalated. And and so it's just to have somebody who represents the interest of that generation that is just emerging, who can tell people this is what's happening out there and, and do it from the standpoint of their own life experience, just invaluable in Washington, D.C. And so, you know, I hope that you appreciate that you're speaking for so many people in rural America. You're speaking for so many uh, millennials who need that voice in Washington. They need somebody who understands their life experience. And so it's a daunting task, but it falls to you 
And so I'm just, I'm thrilled that you're there. I want to ask about a couple other issues, um, kind of as we we look forward. You're on the A committee. You know, it's always so funny because I have a little bit of an accent. Yes, people say that. And and when I dictate and I say the Ag Committee, it always turns out to be the Ag <laughs> committee, committee. But you're on the, the Agricultural Committee. Do you think you'll get a farm bill done this year? I hope so. I am optimistic. You know, and it's it's a critical piece for our producers. And like, just to like light a fire under everyone's tail here, it's like we are on the brink of over half of the American diet being imported. And... The survival and the and the perseverance of our our small producers of a diversity of producers that is a national security interest, um, and I would argue it is a huge piece of the environmental pie. Like our environmental standards are some of the highest of anyone we import from, and if not the highest. And so you know it's it's important that I think our our dollars are especially our tax dollars are going to to supporting our long-term national security interest, the health of our citizens. Like, when you compare the level of spending uh, America exerts on healthcare compared to food, you understand, right? Like, again, you know, I think sometimes trying to get health out of medicine is like pushing with a rope. Like, it starts with a diet. You know, it starts with, Food, like food is medicine and having access to, you know, produce, you know, fresh meat and dairy, like that is fundamental. And more and more we are finding out that is a absolute piece of mental uh, health as well. What you eat absolutely affects your brain chemistry. Congresswoman, I I have a, you know, and I'm going to go backwards just a little bit because this question I've been just itching to ask, which is, you mentioned your husband. Every day he gets up and he makes sure the shop runs and he probably looks for help yeah. because you can't find any help out there to work and that type of thing, right? It's happening all over America. But at some point you sat at the kitchen table and you said, I want to run for Congress. And, you know, you're sitting there with the man that you want to spend the rest of your life with and that you know that you work right next to every day. And you tell him that I'm going to head to D.C. if I win this thing. What did he say? What, what, you know, he knew that what you're going to do is head out east and work around a bunch of old crabby <laughs> men that uh, needed someone like you. But I, I'm really kind of curious what he said. Well, actually, I, you know, it was it was a friction point for a minute. Like he was not when I said I wanted to run. He was like he took he took a few real serious weeks thinking about it because this is the man that like. You know, when I say I'm going to do something, he he believes me. And his perspective was that I was going to win if I ran. I mean, he had a real certainty and confidence in me that, I mean, I, I am so, this man is amazing. You know, he's my biggest booster. And, and I think, um, man, I, I am just, I love this man so much. I, and I'm, you know, I kind of, I miss working with him. Like, I always feel bad when people are like, oh, I could never run a business with my husband. Like, we had a really strong partnership as business owners, too. So, you know, it's it's hard for him. And I think as the race went on and, and seeing how serious, you know, 
the difference in the values between my opponent and I are like gets his blood boiling, you know, like he really, really believes that we are fighting for our country, like our democratic values. So he's, he's just like, he's just been amazing. And our neighbors have been amazing. Uh, my parents, his parents, everybody, like when I'm in DC, my parents come and stay with him. And when I'm in, in Washington state, his parents come and stay, you know. So we just got this really incredible, like our world runs on grandparents. They've been phenomenal. He's been just such a booster and um, I know how to pick them. You know, I think that's my, <laughs> well, I, I, I have to tell you a story that I laughed when you said you got a carburetor as the first <laughs> present your husband gave you. My husband grew up on a small family farm. He was the fix-it guy. You know, that's back before you had all, well, I, his parents, if you want vintage tractors, I know where to take you. Let me put it that way. But he's he's very mechanical. The first thing he ever gave me was a toolbox from Craftsman. Oh, my gosh. Such a romantic. He just knew. And, and in, fact, in fact, I think he bought it for himself because he quickly took it back and filled it, filled it full of um, his own tools. But but I think, you know, I, I think people really don't understand. And I think sometimes there is a there's kind of a judgment that comes with a young woman who has a new baby. You know, you're abandoning your husband. But for so many of our husbands, this is, and, and political spouses in general, it's, they believe in the work. They believe that this is important to the country. And what I love about what you said is you announce you're running and the rest of the district says, oh yeah, go, good luck with that. And he's like, well, you're leaving me. And you're like, well, you know, it's, it's yeah. a long shot, but he never <laughs> doubted. It sounds like he never doubted that you were going to yeah. win. That is so good. That's so important. So yeah, as you head into uh, the reelection, you're going to you're going to be paired up probably with the guy you beat last yep. time, right? Yep. How do you think this campaign will be different? Well, I mean, for one thing, the Republican National Committee is already putting out TV ads against me. They previously assumed that it was such a right-leaning seat that they didn't have to put any money into it. And this time, they real, you know. So by the end of the year, they should have put in about a million dollars in TV ads against me. So wow. it's just going to be a brutal character assassination, I think, throughout the next two years. And, you know, I I also, you know, I'm like, I'm I'm here to fight and hold the seat and and be diligent and and making sure we have the resources to hold the seat. But I also think it's an opportunity, like my voting record, the the projects that I'm supporting, my relationships, the way that I talk to people. You know, I've got more time to build relationships and and sort of get around, like you said, the RD label, right? It's like, no, I, I'm here not because I'm trying to like be a pundit for my party, but because I passionately care about Southwest Washington. You know, Congresswoman, the one thing that uh, that everybody's going to look to or wants to run on is what they got done. I realize that. And it's in this environment and what's going on in D.C. I don't know how anyone can go home and say, look what I got done. I I just think that at least the perception of the country is that, you know, nothing's getting done. Yeah. I mean, I I think you're right. Like, you know, this is a dysfunctional body and I am not sugarcoating that. But I also think the work of member of Congress is also fundamentally to be, you know, the advocate for the district. And so some of the, the things that I'm most proud of are 
you know, especially to date has been um, the casework we're able to do for our constituents. You know, we've returned mm, almost uh, almost two hundred thousand dollars back to our constituents in, in federal uh, in federal dollars they were owed, and getting out in front of the agencies is like, you know, holding federal agencies accountable for the work that they are doing or are not doing uh, for our constituents. So those are those are some really important things. And it's also some of the most gratifying work, right, to like shake the tree. Like, you know, I, I was just working with a, a gentleman who had been trying for five years to get his grandfather's records from the National Archives so they could apply for a congressional gold medal. And we were able to get them in under a month for them. Like, that stuff is fun. You're absolutely right. And too often, I think people have been there for a long time, you know, kind of take it for granted. And to have that enthusiasm that you bring to constituent services. And as a member of the community, you understand how critical it is for people to understand, you know, my dad deserved that Purple Heart and he didn't get the Purple Heart. Those, you know, some of my my fondest memories, in spite of, yeah, I could tell you all the great pieces of legislation I worked on as a United States Senator, but none of that will ever compare with getting a Dakota warrior his um, purple heart and watching his face. Um, and so these are yeah. these are blessings and they connect you to your community. Um, and so I have no doubt that you are going to be incredibly successful. You did it once, you can do it again. And um, I think that your district took a chance and you're delivering for him. And this is terrific. Well, you know, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And and I think it's also critical, like changing the conversation around some of these issues like that is half the battle is getting people to pay attention to what's going on. You know, and like in my district. So I my district is all on the Columbia River and then out to the ocean in southwest Washington. So we can have some really high water table. And I know this is really getting in the weeds here, but like basically some of these like EPA standards around water treatment. So many rural communities are facing these like water treatment bills they cannot afford. And, you know, the idea that like Americans are getting at risk of getting hepatitis, you know, because we don't have functioning sewer systems, they're, you know, leaking septic fields, like that is crazy. Mm -hmm. And so just this like return to basic good governance, like the nuts and bolts of infrastructure that work. And like, you know, we're also home to Bonneville Power Administration like a big, big hydro projects. And I am I am really proud of the version of America where we believed we could build things that would be an asset for generations, like things that, you know, when the, when the federal government can invest in making energy cheaper and more efficient for all Americans, like that's the, you know, I think one of the most powerful things the government can do. And, and we've sort of gotten wound up in, I think, treating symptoms and not the root cause of a lot of these issues. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I know that uh, we've held you for a long time. It, it has just oh. been such a pleasant conversation. And when I call you, you better come out and have a... I love a, it. We would say a <laughs> cup of coffee. That sounds polite. But you you and I both know we're going to have a beer together. And Joel, we might invite you too, just so we have a little balance. I'll, I'll invite you, Joel. Oh, I'll come invite on. You. Well, <laughs> Congressman, you need to understand, she always does invite me because she never has her wallet. Oh, shush. 
<laughs> oh, shush, shush, shush. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on. I hope it. I hope it's thank one you. of many. And if there's anything you want to talk about that um, you think is important, uh, you just give us a call. We'd love to have you on again. Thank you. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. Take care. As my listeners know, I'm passionate about rural America and don't want to see it left behind. For more information on the issues we're working on at One Country Project or how you can join me, check out theonecountryproject.com. Thanks for listening to The Hot Dish. We'll be serving up many more great conversations about matters that are important to rural Americans. So stay tuned and we'll see you in two weeks. This has been a lot of fun. See everybody in two weeks. <laughs>